All right, and welcome back to the Dice Are Screen Podcast. Oh! Brought to you live from the Autonomous Gaming Citadel, or as you probably will be hearing it, recorded. Yes, yes, recorded live. Uh, well, as alive as we yeah. can be considered. I mean, isn't that everything that gets recorded it was recorded alive one time? I don't know. Yeah, I mean, unless you were recording the actual dead. Uh, mm. It's all live recording. So uh, if you had an interview with a vampire, that would be recorded <laughs> dead? I, all right. Uh, well, welcome to it. and uh, Welcome we are... to the, you know, half-lit, live-nude-girl sign of <laughs> gaming <laughs> podcasts. <laughs> Well, um, uh, yeah, yeah, the fading fluorescence of gaming podcasts. Yeah, this is the dice are screaming. And uh, thanks for tuning in once again. We hope you enjoy our little show. We got a little bit of a different take coming at you this week, um, but we appreciated everybody's for their call-ins and uh, stuff. And speaking of call-ins, oh. we've got Frothsop. Oh, excellent. He's graced us yet again with another call-in, so he definitely enjoyed our last one. Oh, good. So did I. That was a particularly fun conversation because we were, we're getting back to some, you know, classic gaming material. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, he had some thoughts on it, and it seems to be timely for him, so we may revisit that topic one more time. I oh, think the Underdark? Be, yeah. Excellent. We will talk about uh, something about... Um, Maybe Mind Players or oh, the, the, the Abeleth Realms or something like that. Yeah, campaign, strong campaign concepts. Uh, well, I'll, look, I'm not going to take away the strong campaign concept of the Abeleth. I just personally detest them. Yeah. It's and uh, So grotesque. Uh, very Cthulhu. If, if you've got players who like horror games, then like you can shape a D&D campaign to reflect that, and it's pretty horror-oriented. Mm-hmm. So... Uh, <laughs> Uh, but not necessarily my cup of tea. Now, on the other hand, well, yeah, Brothsop. We'll go ahead and uh, turn it over to you. You give us uh, your two cents, and we'll be back after the break. What's up, y'all? It's Froth again. I, you said you didn't mind me calling in, so here I am. Wanted to congratulate y'all on a, another great episode. I love the Underdark stuff. I'm actually running Night Below with my group right now, so... I can come back to this episode. Uh, there were a lot of good ideas there. Um, I put uh, the D1, D2 combo module in like my top five all time. Love it. And uh, you were talking about using, uh, you know, the first edition stuff with later editions or, or just, you know, looking at different sources. But I know y'all aren't the biggest 4E fans from the uh, Edition Wars episode, but I did want to mention to y'all the 4E Underdark book is underrated the fluff in there if you got access to it take a look or just take my word for it you might be surprised there's actually some decent uh flavor and stuff in there but anyways great another great episode take it easy all right thanks bro for the kind words and uh yeah d1 and d2 are definitely up there on my list as well oh classic uh then you know, d1 d2 and then of course q1 uh some of the best campaign enders, yeah, you know, we've ever experienced were out of those modules, so they're great source material for Underdark and uh, Under Earth politics. I'm yeah. so glad you enjoyed. But you mentioned something that brings up a point I really want to, I, I should clarify my grumpiness regarding 4e 
extends only to the core concepts and game mechanics that were employed in its creation. I would agree with uh, Froth there that a lot of the material that was released, tertiary material, the, the secondary stuff that mm -hmm. came out, uh, well-written, great product. I really don't have any beef against the authors. Uh, you know, it's not a deep personal grudge like uh, the systemic alterations. Yeah. So I, I had system issues and like game concept issues, but no issues whatsoever with a lot of the quality work that was done for materials that were being released. And, uh, you know, my hat's off to the authors. Uh, my kimono is open to them. Okay. <laughs> well, now, of course, for the designers who put together the actual uh, core materials, uh, <laughs> I'm up against the window giving them a pressed ham. So, <laughs> oh boy. Uh, yeah. No. All right. All right. Enough of that. Enough yeah, of those. Oh. Enough of those hard feelings. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. <laughs> yeah. Just shake that off. Okay. So, yeah. Um, also, good grab, uh, Roth, on the uh, night below. I like that uh, set, and uh, definitely. You did something more with the Underdark than just, you know, Drow. Um, so, yeah, that's a great one. And, uh, of course, uh, thanks for queuing us in on some of the uh, 4E stuff that we may have overlooked. It wasn't... Uh, I'm with Mike. I'm not really uh, upset about anybody who likes 4E or anything like that. Um, I just... My personal preference was is my expectations were not met. And, uh, you know, so be it. You know, I can do something else while that happens. I don't uh, bear a great ill will to anyone who plays or enjoys 4E. So... Oh, yes, I understand it. Uh, you know, a lot of people, uh, the editions we love have a lot to do with the editions that we really hit our stride during, as, mm -hmm. as we mentioned in the Edition Wars session. Um, it's when you have that gaming experience and you're playing with friends and you get some great laughs and some crazy rolls and events unfold uh, and you build this collective memory, uh, that was the thing that was important. So, you know, my my relative grumpiness is unimportant yeah uh, compared to weighed against that awesomeness that is the essence of gaming itself yeah even edition wars cannot change that well we borrow a lot of different uh aspects from different games call of cthulhu for me a lot and uh although i rely heavily on some other things too um that kind of brings us to our topic and so we're going to cover on something that we're not as heavily gaming oriented as some of the other topics we've had recently. So yeah, this this one we're we're taking a little vacation, and this one is just this is just for us. Okay, uh, we're being selfish here, and we know it. Uh, this is about true love. Yeah, and we were gaming during the early '80s, and uh, you know we had our various uh, run-ins with learning how to game and when to. Uh, how to describe things, and I think one of the things that uh, we're going to talk about tonight is how we were influenced by one particular media, and that's film. And we here at the Dice are screaming like to pride ourselves as being supporters of the cinema. Oh, absolutely. And <clears throat> we're we're not even really highlighting all film. Okay, this this session, this is a love note, mm -hmm. a love note written from two gamers to a single movie. Uh, what is that movie, you might ask? Why, that's John Milnes's Conan, Conan the, the Barbarian. Barbarian. Yeah, the masterpiece itself. And this is a timely discussion, I think, because Arnie himself has been involved in uh, uh, doing a little, you know, 
uh, wheel greasing to work on King Conan. Yeah. And trying to get the backing and the support necessary to do it with John Milnes. Yeah, and uh, Marvel Comics recently got uh, the Conan license back from Dark yeah. Horse. And Dark Horse did a great job, not trying to try to diminish that. No, no. But Marvel was where I first cut my teeth on uh, Conan the Barbarian. I was first introduced to him by just the uh, comic, but then I grew to love the Savage Sword black and white magazine that came out monthly. Man, See, that, that was my first uh, Conan reading, was the Savage Sword of Conan large comics, uh, which I thought were fantastic. Yeah, they were really well done. Uh, they were black and white and uh, featured a great illustration style between uh, three or four uh, artists and whoever else they brought in. Um, I'm not going to name them all because it's just comic geekery, but it is uh, to say that those guys who did it uh, were masters of their craft and that really highlighted the black and white illustration. And, uh, you know, uh, Savage Sword was a little bit more adult, although, you know, it wasn't uh, adult in the sense that we think of adult now. No, no, this, look, it was not triple X material, but compared to, uh, you know, superheroes uh, running around punching bad guys, uh, Conan, on the other hand, uh, hacked and slew his way through quite the... Uh, oh, yeah, they were quite country. bloody. And uh, not uh, compared to today's standards, probably maybe tame, but still for the time, actually showing uh, blood and gore. yeah. Uh, cleavage, uh, notwithstanding, you know, this... A lot of uh, boobs and buttocks. While a lot of comics were what we would consider graphic in terms of uh, 80s, be like, cheesecake, uh, unlike that, uh, Conan was, you know, it was a violent world and it was depicted as such, uh, with lots of backstabbing and betrayal and, uh, you know, knives at everybody's throats and, yeah. Sometimes you got to kill that guard quiet. You know, mm-hmm. just, it, there are lots of scenarios that you would not think of as certainly not PG. Yeah, and so the Savage Sword told the story a little bit better, but of course there were adaptations of Robert E. Howard's stories, which they sometimes covered some of the material that Howard wrote and some of it uh, L. Sprague de Camp also covered. But uh, nonetheless... Um, no discussion of Conan before we get into the movie can be sufficient without mentioning the original author, Robert E. Howard. Now, troubled man that he was, he wrote well, and he wrote fast, and he was also writing for uh, commercial reasons. And I forgot the name of the movie about him, which I thought was stellar. Yeah. I, it, it really gave you a window into who this guy was. Uh, and he was a fascinating and conflicted character uh, in his era. So, you know, here's this, this guy from Texas, uh, you know, son of a fairly well-off guy, uh, who is a little on the sickly side himself, uh, and then decides to counter that by constantly working out, and then, uh, instead of taking the easy route and, you know, going into dad's business, uh, decides to be a writer, but doesn't think he knows enough about the world and challenges himself with all of these jobs that are roughneck jobs. I mean, the hardest, dirtiest, toughest work there is to be found in Texas in the oil fields. Uh, and, you know, basically that's how he learned about the world. So the the punchy, tough, almost, uh, well, pre-Mickey Spillane. Yeah. You know, here was a guy who wrote these very convincing 
depictions of living rough and, you know, being surrounded by, you know, dangerous people because he did. <laughs> so, yeah, and, you know, kind uh, of in our uh, Hemingway-esque style, he was able to write from his experiences with some authenticity that he lent to his work. So that's why a gravitation towards that. And we're not going to cover any of the other controversial aspects yeah, that people yeah. raise. Those... Right. Those are for another discussion, but don't have the time because this is a love letter to a movie. So no. we're, we're but Howard inspired a lot of people. Now we mentioned the reason why we have to go back and talk about this is because we always like to start from the beginning and give us some context. Conan was seen as a literary uh, work, whether it was commercial or pulpish, it didn't matter. However, that context is taken. It was pushed into the mainstream by the comics, and John Milnes started to write a script with. Another up-and-coming uh, writer, um, oh, geez, I just, uh, it's just slip of the tongue. Um, yeah, he had another script writer there, Oliver Stone. Mm. That's the name I was searching for. It came back to me the first writer time. Yeah, Oliver Stone helped write it, and uh, they really went full ham with it. They didn't hold anything back. And uh, so when Arnold was brung in, and not a great actor to say, and a little clumsy in the screen, but uh, Conan the Barbarian. Your first opening scene is, you know, this is in the age <laughs> of mystery. You know, it's just this, in an age undreamt of. Yes. Uh -huh. You were introduced to the world of Conan. And, of course, to Basil Polidorus' magnificent score for the movie. Which, again, uh, number two on the love letter is not just the, the visual experience of watching the film. Uh, number two on the love letter is Basil Polidorus's score, which they had to fight for because uh, the big thing at the time was to have standard rock scores. Yeah. Uh, like, you know... Uh, Dino De Laurentiis uh, funded and produced the, the movie, got it through, and uh, Universal picked it up, of course. But Dino was, you know, kids love rock music. They're just crazy about it. They'll just, you know, they'll eat it up. And... That was not the movie John Milnes wanted to make. Uh, if, if you remember, look, a lot of people loved the movie Lady Hawk. Uh, I, I still, to this day, look back, and the one thing I didn't like was the crazy, like, semi-rock score <laughs> that would pop up periodically. Yeah. Uh, it annoyed the crap out of me because it really didn't belong. It just felt like the one element that was jarring yeah. me out of place. Uh, and Conan did none of that. It had Basil Polidorus's incredibly lavish symphonic scores uh, in the background that just popped in very subtly. And some of the time, it was mood music, okay? It was just mm -hmm. background sounds to augment the, the moment. Uh, and those were highly appropriate and carefully thought out. But other times, the music that he produced for that movie felt like it was something that you should be hearing right there on the spot in that room, that that's the music that you would be hearing. Uh, oh, the... Uh, well, I believe they refer to it as the orgy. Well, yeah. But we're getting a little ahead of ourselves. <laughs> yeah, when yeah, the movie started, you know, you see the forging of the sword. And, of course, there's the controversial Frederick Nietzsche quote right at the front of the movie, which kind of also says this is the uh, Frederick Nietzsche Memorial movie. <laughs> And yes, it does have some themes concurrent with it, but uh, none of the craziness that other people attribute to Nietzsche's work. But uh, 
you know, that it had a strong central theme to that opening sequence. And uh, if you watch the movie, you'll know what I'm talking about. So that which does not kill you makes you stronger. And uh, so that is kind of the premise that you start out with. Like, what, what, what is this? So the movie went forward, and we get to see Conan growing up and then his village, uh, his people slain by the evil sorcerer Thulsidum. And again, another thing about Milnes is, is that uh, there is uh, Alexander uh, Noveski, a movie probably about 30 people have seen, but that scene where he removes his helm slowly. Yes. There's these, uh, in that movie, uh, Alexander Noveski, about the uh, Templars in the 12th century. The evil Templars, re- the leader of them removes his great helm in a slow, solemn procession as he's looking at the defeated people before him. Yeah, likely about to die in a slaughter. And, and there you hear that droning, dirge-like music, you know, where there's going to be something terrible happening. And, you know, you kind of get the impression that there's more to Thulsa Doom than just being a reaver and how he transfixes Conan's mother by looking her in the eye and slowly she lowers the blade. Yeah, lets her guard down. And then he just removes her head. Uh, But that single shot of him slowly removing the helm is very much an homage to a movie from another time that largely was completely forgotten by history. I mean, only film students would ever have even had exposure to this. I saw it later and I was like, wow, this is where he got it from. But that goes with our premise that good DMs don't borrow. They steal. Yes. Uh, And Milnes, honestly, he'd make a great DM. Yeah, and DMs and filmmakers have much in the same thing. There is nothing that is not used by artists. Yeah, and it's much the same job, too, because the director is entirely in charge of deciding what it is you're going to see and experience. So is the DM, and that's, that's the relationship that they have with their audience and the relationship that a DM has with their audience. You are providing an impression of a time, a place, and the events. And that delivery of it is your job. So it, it's actually a really... Yeah, and really to have that visual intake of all the scenery. And, you know, you notice all the armor and all the impressionism of the mood and the music and the scenery all go to make the same thing that a GM's job is, is which is to narrate and convey through the medium that you have, which is primarily your voice and your vocabulary. Now, you can get this from the uh, <coughs> uh, DVD with the director's commentary, uh, but they put a lot of work in the original Conan the Barbarian movie into the authenticity of the materials used, mm-hmm. uh, the clothing... Uh, the buildings, uh, the tools, the weapons, everything uh, was made to have an impression of wear and use and age. And that was not accidental at all. No. And they they had a top-tier props department doing exactly what John Milnes asked of them. Yeah, and, you know, Arnold, as uh, we then go, we're going to handle this a little bit by scenes, but... The last one I want to get into is uh, where he is taken from the Wheel of Pain, which, you know, what is that wheel doing? We can kind of surmise maybe it's crushing grain or whatever. But uh, apparently it's there for some purpose and out in the middle of nowhere to 
chain people to so that they move a wheel. Okay. Yeah, I've still never really understood that part. That's a thing. But, you know, but then he gets into the pit, and then we see, you know, Conan in that montage of him just killing people. He did not care anymore, you know. And, you know, of course, Macau narrates. Oh, Mako. Yeah. Mako, okay. Yes, Mako's narration, uh, which some of you, uh, born slightly later than us, uh, may recall his voice from the opening of another show. Past vaulted doors, where who knows what things may lie. Dexter's Laboratory. You know, that, and Jack the Samurai. Yeah, as Aku, the demon. Uh, Mako is one of the great voice actors and narrators, and he was just a, an all-around fascinating character. Uh, so as the, the wizard in the Conan. Conan. Yep. I will summon a demon more terrible than any in hell. Now we get a look at uh, Thulsa Doom in the first opening sequence there, and then and then there's very little set of them. And then, the, you know, as Conan matures and is eventually let loose in the, from slavery, he then, uh, you know, ventures forth and finds a companion, and they explore the wicked and evil civilization. <laughs> uh, civilization, ancient and wicked. Yeah, and so... Right there, you have that they get the scope of the world. They talk about their gods. There are many cities. There are different places. And right there, just with that small little uh, sequence of scenes, you get the impression that the Hyborian world is much larger than could be contained in one movie. And they don't over-explain it, but they give you glimpses of it through the various scenes of them going through cities, leaving one, ah, let's leave here, you know, and go to another. And then they finally end up raiding a temple to steal a jewel. <laughs> the Eye of the Serpents. <laughs> of all the things to pick. And to run into another thief in the process. Yep. Uh, yes. It just it had a very uh, slapdash D&D-esque uh, feel to it in the sense that here are two people who are just, you know, drifting from place to place, uh, doing whatever they can to, you know, pay the bills. Murder hoboing, you know. Yeah, classic murder hoboing. Uh, not necessarily chaotic evil style where like, hey, let's just take this guy with a passing ox cart, dang him over the head and take his stuff. No, you know, they look for the big score, the guy who's got plenty to lose. Right, and they, they go into the temple, and before CGI, the wonderful scene of the, uh, it still holds up today, I think, even the age of uh, CGI, that huge serpent rearing up, gave you the feel of a dangerous world with a uh, supernatural element to it, with monsters of a different stripe rather than your slavering beasts. Yeah, and I have seen modern material uh, where they've attempted to do this without CGI that went far worse than this, okay? Yeah. Uh, CGI has its limits, and... More than once, I've seen attempts in film and television to do something without CGI, uh, and the production skill to use a dummy or a replica, you know, some of the better examples would be Jaws, where yeah, the, sure. animat the animated shark uh, was huge, terrifying, and pretty freaking convincing. Uh, that was a great example of it, but I've seen a lot of bad ones. Things yeah. Where you know, cheaply made monsters were, were not very pretty. Milnes overcame that and created this fabulous scene with the pit fight with a giant snake. Yeah, very Conan-esque. Oh. Out of the 
Frazetta works and other uh, Conan covers of the uh, novels. And so that was good. And then Conan finally gets the glimpse of, once again, the banner that was held high over his ruined village. Yeah, now as an amulet. And he takes that, and now he has a new course in life. And of got course, a, I've got a clue. He comes to a crossroads where he could stay with Valera and his friend and do what they want, go wherever they will. The guy just gave us a pile of rubies. We can run for it. Yeah, and we have to also give a moment here to Max von Sydow. Yes, also one of the great moments. I mean, yeah, we're, we're speaking of... We already spoke of Mako and his terrific narration and his role of the wizard. Uh, but... As King Osric the Usurper. They cut too much of the material out, uh, for my money. You yeah. Know, just some of the best scenes. The betrayal of King Osric would have been great. Yeah, uh, you get but, to see that in extended versions. Max von Sydow, uh, one of the great actors. A guy who's been in legendary... Ingmar Bergman films. Yeah. Uh, that to to net him as King Osric was just this huge coup. Yep, and you know, old and besotted. <laughs> Osric the usurper. Yep, and uh, you know, he offers him to get his daughter back, and of course, Conan has other motives besides just rescuing a wayward daughter. That's I want to find out what this is all about. Somewhere in here, you know, is the guy so are the group responsible for the death of my entire village. Revenge. Yes, and uh, so he leaves that. But uh, for the gaming part here, it installed into me that play all your NPCs, even bit part players, with gusto, and they will be remembered. Yeah, hit them out of the park. Uh, your background characters, your quest givers, give them some life, man, because uh, honestly, it's your opportunity to be, to be King Osric. Yeah, and here again you see Conan going through, you know, we we kind of skip past the Atlantean tomb there, but he's got that sword, and now he's in this studded leather. You know, he's constantly changing wardrobe, and, you know, he always his armor is different but functional. Yeah, whatever he can get his paws on at the time. Can he afford it right now? Oh, did he run out of money? He sells the good stuff, uh, downgrades a little. Yeah. And that is true to the actual Conan books. Because he was constantly in different scenarios, like uh, one time a mercenary, another time a thief, another time a sailor. You know, it just his opportunities dictated his circumstances. Yeah, and every so often you're like, ah, well, I gambled and lost. So you know, yeah, but he goes out and then now finds the Temple of Doom and uh, infiltrates what I call the Doom hippies. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and uh, he gets in there and. Uh, you know, tries to infiltrate and gets caught. And uh, he's seen now with James Earl Jones as the sorcerer. Now, we already know James Earl Jones as the voice of Darth Vader, but now we get to see him fully able to act. And Oh, and he was legendary in it. Thulsa Doom was alternately terrifying and tempting, and he was meant to be. He was like this guy who was almost hypnotically uh, wise. Someone who, when you hear them speak... And look into their eyes. You get the impression that they know a truth that you do not. Yeah. Their absolute confidence pulls you in. A powerful Stygian sorcerer. Mm-hmm. Who has decided to surround himself with a cult of fanatics. Yeah. And building his base of power and opening gives, temples in city after city. 
snakes in my city. And all for the glory of Set. And again, you know, there's all these clues, like there's these subhumans wandering around in the tunnels doing their bidding and stuff like that in the temple. You know, there's all these kind of allusions to different things. And of course, multiple viewings allow you this. And as you can see, that we're big fans of the movie. There's so much to take in. The first time I was literally overwhelmed. Yeah, you miss half of it because there is so much going on subtly in the background, and it's all woven together. It is not there accidentally. Milnes was obligated to make a great deal of cuts to fit it into a proper uh, film time slot for the studios, but he was very thoughtful in what he kept. I've seen a lot of movies ruined by cutting essential mm -hmm. material Doom. and by presenting material in a very disjointed fashion. At least Dune was linear, even though they, yeah, went, through, yeah. they went through like three or four directors and it wound up being a, uh, what's his name, Smith production. Oh, yeah, they, when they finally got to the finish. But anyway... But Conan of... avoided all of these sins. <laughs> it, it maintained all of its relevant material. Oh, very true. Uh, Milnes really had a terrific victory, with even with what was left in the final release. And, uh, you know, we get out to... He meets... Uh, the sorcerer Macau. Ah, Mako. 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 I keep saying Macau, but Macau. Tomato, tomato. Um, Macau is a country. I know. I wasn't putting that. But anyway, Mako. Not a word agreed on the pronunciation. Makeup. Makeup. Oh, let's not start that. No. Yeah. You get. He meets him, and, you know, now he's. Crucified in the tree of woe, and you know the um, his companions rescue him, and they bring him back from the. But not before he bites a buzzard in the neck. Oh yeah, <laughs> uh, the riddle man. of steel as his last gift from Thulsa Doom, which is of course an archetype, a note to the archetype of Joseph Campbell's The Dark Father. You know his last parting gift before he kills him. Yeah, that uh, he gives him one piece of wisdom now that it's too late to make proper use of it. Theoretically, too late uh, does not wind up being the case. But uh, the piece of wisdom being that it's it's not the sword that makes you strong; it's the hand wielding the sword. The yeah. strength of that hand is what matters. That the strength of the person counts more than any one weapon. Uh, that was the riddle of steel. Yeah, and so he sends him on to his doom, and his friends rescue him, and then they make one raid. And now we talk about the orgy scene there, and. Uh, of course, the transformation of James Earl Jones into the giant serpent. Yeah, all of his followers are, well, uh, presumably engaged in, well, both cannibalism and uh, an orgy at the same time. Since Narcotics the, and all sorts of things. Yeah, Lotus. just, yeah, welcome to paradise. Uh, yeah, paradise that they're all bombed and have no idea what they're doing. Uh, they're wasted all the time, so they, they're pretty sure everything is paradise. Now... In the midst of all this, they do the slow transformation scene, back and forth shots. Like, you know, like, oh, hey, here's the party going on on the ground. And over here, James Earl Jones, slowly changing shape into a huge serpent. Uh, and once again, no CGI. Uh, this, this was done the old-fashioned way. Yep, and it still, I think, holds up on its own. Now, uh, kind of... As this movie, uh, they get the princess, they get out of there, and there's a, a number of good fight scenes in there, and also some staging and choreography. The great pillar falling to separate Conan and his two earlier pro uh, antagonists. He gets out, 
And, of course, now they're free, but his lover, Valera, takes a sacrifice for bringing Conan back from death's door. That she was kind of baited to die, uh, and she gets an arrow. Just boom. A snake arrow. A serpent arrow that is poison, uh, and she's not going to make it. You know, a life for a life. The gods are cruel that way. Mm -hmm. And then there's the uh, climactic fight scene between Tulsa Doom and his vengeful followers, and them on the Karen Hills, with the great scene of the billowing cloak with James Earl Jones, which is very reminiscent of Frazetta's Death Dealer. And that's not, again, an not accident. an accident at all. Uh, Milnes studied the material uh, carefully. He really went out of his way, despite the fact that this was a plot, a story written by people who were not, you know, uh, original Conan authors. Uh, they extrapolated a lot of serious material from the you know, legacy of Conan, yeah. uh, both in the art and other things. And they, they homaged it in film. And if you're not familiar with it, then, you know, you'll miss it. Uh, but it's there. So the, yep. the, the love letter was also from them to the, the original material, uh, which is why we're taking time out to do a love letter to the secondary material. Yeah, and, uh, and then the uh, fight with one of Dulce uh, Doom's henchmen. Uh, he has Conan's father's sword, and Conan severs it with the Atlantean blade. Just bang! And then brings home the whole idea of the hand that wields. Yeah, it's not the sword that was the object of the quest. It was the, you know, the personal liberation from, you know, being strong enough to, to understand the difference. That it's not the weapon, it's the man. Yeah. And uh, he takes his father's sword and beheads Thulsidum, confronting him one last time in his own temple. As Thulsidum is presumably going to rally his followers to kill themselves or some great sacrifice or something's going moment, moment, momentous and going to happen. And Total anticlimax. Whack! Off goes the head of your so-called deity. Yeah, tells him, who, who am I but if not your true father? And he almost has Conan, and then he snaps out of it and kills him. And then... Throws his head down the steps with the resultant gasps and hollow thudding sound. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then the followers just sadly dropping their little torches into the pool and, you know, extinguishing their, their light and wandering off into the desert to go wherever and start yeah, To their some lives unforeseen over. end. Nobody knows what happens to all of them. But. And uh, Conan brings the wayward daughter of King Osric back, and having no further concern, goes to more wars in the West. And, of course, we end with that great scene of Conan on the throne, presumably many years later, now the king of Aquilonia. King by his own hand. Yeah, and also, again, true to the fiction of Robert E. Howard and yep. Elspreg de Camp and others, uh, you know, that at some point late in his life he had acquired a kingdom by his own hand uh, and was himself a usurper an outsider who acquired the throne. Uh, no, it, it promised much. You know, there was a lot of hope at the time that there would be another movie. And now that hope flares anew. Yeah, and we've had, uh, you know, Conan the Barbarian, which you, you say what you want about it. It's a little flat. And, oh, uh, oh uh, Ron, uh, uh, Red Sonja also. Uh, not Conan the Barbarian. Conan the Destroyer. Conan the, the Destroyer, the, thank, the, you, the, thank the, you. The second movie was not directed by John Milnes. And, uh, frankly, it was as though Hollywood finally got a free reign without a director holding them back. 
they got somebody compliant to be like, no, no, go with our vision. And their vision was a piece of crap. They did not understand the material. They did not understand the audience for it. They grasped nothing of what made the first movie great. Yeah, just and have so Arnold it, walking around half nude. Yeah, so that when it fizzled, they were like, oh, oh you know, must have just been a flash in the pan. No, uh, it, it's that you screwed it up. You know, just... Yeah, Roy what? Thomas wrote uh, that script, who was the author, most of the time, the author of Savage sort of Conan stories. And he did a fairly good job of putting it together, but once Hollywood gets their hands on it, they tend to ruin things, and, you know... Yeah, the weasels the weasels ripped its flesh <laughs> until nothing recognizable. It wasn't Milness and Stone, you know, no. right, doing the directing on that and writing. So, yeah, but now we're teased with a new one, and, of course, this influenced us heavily in D&D, and also it... Favored heavily in at least mine. I can only speak for myself on this one. Mike will have to give his own, but it rang a chord with me of how things should look and have a feel uh, and descriptions. And although a DM doesn't often have visual uh, assistance the way a movie would, the DM is the chief describer. And so things like this, we, we touched on this on the subject of inspiration in one of our early episodes. Uh, and we highlight this one movie principally because we were teens at the time who were just fumbling around with these game books, and we didn't really have what you could consider a concrete vision of how to DM and how to describe things and, you know, what a campaign setting should be like. And that movie filled in a lot of the blanks. Mm -hmm. uh, it just came along one single movie and made a big dent. And like, there's a lot of other movies out there. Perhaps we'll do another, you know, Movies to Electric Boogaloo oh, yeah. uh, session where we discuss other films that were very inspirational. But this one was the biggest. It was the elephant in the room. It, it popped up out of nowhere by surprise. And we just sat there in kind of awe going... I can't believe what I just saw. I, this was so many layers of awesome that I'm peeling it back like an onion skin. Uh, we, yeah. we barely even scratched the surface today. We could do a three-hour you know, commentary session while the movie plays in the background uh, without breaking a sweat. But we managed to plug most of what we love today. Yeah, and it did influence us. And, of course, Lord of the Rings and other movies would be oh. a part of that. We mentioned Lady Hawk, but... Also, Willow was in there and other fantasy films. But this was the big one for us. Beastmaster! Well, okay. Uh, well, we'll have to talk. Yeah, we can throw Hawk the Slayer in there as well. But, yeah, uh, you know, just... Uh, <laughs> there's a lot of stuff out there from that time period uh, that was riffing on the same note at exactly the moment that gaming was coming into vogue. So, uh, it had its place. But Conan looms largest of all because of its excellence. Uh, I recommend it. And I, I recommend highly turning everything off while you watch it. Conan the Barbarian, the original movie. Preferably even the director's cut. And paying attention. Turn off all the other stuff in the house. You know, don't use the phone while you're, you're watching it. Sit there and absorb the entirety of it. And think of what you can harvest from this as a DM. Uh, as an explainer of a campaign setting, as the person introducing characters to plots and describing scenarios and rooms and weapons. Uh, all of that can be taken 
for one single movie. Yeah, and I skipped the Atlantean tomb because I'm going to revisit that for another episode. But I am going to say that one reason, uh, one thing to look at that is when you watch the Atlantean tomb, there is no narration, only music, and only visuals. Take that in and consider that. Yeah, no conversation, uh, no flashy effects, just uh, carefully chosen mood music to augment the situation and you know, the visual images. That's it. There's nothing else there. Mm -hmm. Stark, plain, uh, and it, it's meant to focus the attention on it. What? We have run over our time. Oh, we have not run over our time, but we are coming to the end of it. So we want to thank you for putting up with this. And again, uh, if you have any comments, questions, or concerns, we hope you enjoyed this. But let us know if we didn't hit the mark or if there's something you think that we left out. But we will be revisiting this and other movies in the future. So again, you can reach us at any of our normal haunts. We have our Facebook group, The Dice Are Screaming, as well as on Twitter, where I am at DeathHand, that's D-E-T-H, Gaming. And... Oh, and I am Magi Box on yeah. Twitter. So let us know what you think and if this uh, was a little off mark for us. But until next time... May the, the dice, dice always roll in your favor. favor. We're out. See ya.